By any standard, Mike Nichols was a brilliant auteur who worked with everyone from Richard Burton to Meryl Streep. The catalog of both plays and films for the large and small screens that he directed is long and impressive, though most times in reviewing the list you might find yourself saying, Mike Nichols directed that? He was prolific and versatile. He was also a truly complicated man whose life was fascinating for both its triumphs and successes and its sorrows and challenges. Mark Harris is the author of a new book about him, Mike Nichols, A Life. It's a compelling story for anyone who appreciated Mike Nichols and in some interesting ways, even for those who are as yet unfamiliar with his work. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. We might be familiar with the name Mike Nichols from his partnership in the comedic duo with Elaine May, or know that he directed a slew of Broadway plays and Hollywood films, moving from stage to screen, not just with ease, but with incredible success. His experiences were also fraught. The stress of his roles took a toll and led him to complicated decisions, even as he directed award-winning actors in such films as Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, The Graduate, Heartburn, and Biloxi Blues, and guided actors to accolades and the most coveted awards in the business. He was an immigrant from Berlin, bullied in schools for looking and sounding different. He was brilliant, but didn't do well in school. College was an afterthought for him when he graduated from high school, but he went, and though he never finished, fate led him to that partnership with Elaine May that put him on a labyrinthine but somehow assured course toward his brilliant career. In the biography, Mike Nichols, A Life, author Mark Harris offers us an exhaustively researched, riveting, endlessly fascinating story about this enigmatic figure, even for younger folks who aren't too familiar with Nichols. The book is a fascinating story about a man whose obsessions became clear to him only as he made his way through a sometimes painful childhood and adolescence and complicated relationships as a young man. I spoke to Mark Harris from his home in New York. I think a lot of us have had an idea of Mike Nichols as this really talented, successful guy. You know, some of us have like this vague idea of him. He was he was famous for being in this comedy duo with Elaine May and made this transition to directing plays and movies. Like we, we kind of know that, but then there's just so much more to a life that I'm not even sure even his biggest fans have considered. Um, it's such a complicated story and what's complicated about it starts as it turns out, as we learned from your book, very early on in his life when he was just a boy. Can you talk about a little bit of, of his childhood besides being an immigrant, which is was complicated enough? There's so much more to his childhood that makes him such a complicated figure. Sure. It, it seems to me that Mike had, in, in some ways, a, a kind of exemplary representative 20th century life, and in other ways, really a unique one. And it starts in Germany. Um, he's, he's born in 1931. And in 1939, uh, just as all Jews are really trying to get out of Germany, he, at the age of seven, and his brother, who was four, are sent 
from Berlin to New York City on a boat. Um, their, their father is already there. He's trying to set up a medical practice. Their mother, who was supposed to accompany them, is uh, not there because she is hospitalized with a long-term illness. So, so his story begins alone on a boat at the age of seven and, uh, you know, arriving on foreign shores. Uh, it's, it's fascinating to me that some of his first memories are, are not of as a little German boy, but as a foreigner in a country where he doesn't speak the language, where everything is unfamiliar to him, where he's uh, and his brother are put in a foster home while his father tries to uh, set up a household and where he's really different from all the other kids because uh, Mike had an allergic reaction to a childhood vaccination when he was four and lost the ability to grow hair. So, of course, he was ostracized. He was bullied. He didn't know English. Uh, he was, you know, in in the description of uh, one person who knew him, about as far and uh, as much of an outsider as you could possibly get. And then to top it off, his parents did not have a very convivial relationship. They were very complicated figures too. And I was thinking about the idea of his father even diagnosing his own cancer and his own terrible prognosis and this sudden death. I mean, everything is so dramatic, it seems like, on, t- on top of the bullying, on top of his his issue with um, losing his hair, on top of the issue of language, right, the language barriers. It just seems like at every turn, um, there was something for him to have to contend with that was on a very, very big, dramatic scale. Right. The odds were really kind of stacked against him from, from an early age. His father dies when he's just 12 or 13 years old. And, and that causes, uh, on top of everything else that he was contending with, uh, real economic peril because he was the breadwinner. So the family slides suddenly from a pretty comfortable middle-class existence to um, a real hand-to-mouth existence. It, 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 his mother has to take every kind of odd job she can find, and, and it becomes really challenging for them just to get by. Well, his mother was she was industrious. I mean, she was a resourceful person in many different ways to support the boys after the death of her husband. Uh, I found that very interesting. She was also quite a beautiful woman. Um, But then, you know, so you're sort of plodding along through his story and suddenly the death of his aunt. Um, I mean, it just it just seemed like there was um, so the aunt finally comes to the United States to live with them and is hit by a bus and is killed. Um, right. Just so, so many things. And um, it just it just really, as you say, it just seemed like there was so much against him. And I feel like, and you, you mentioned this too, he was just an extremely watchful little boy. Yes, I think he really had to be because, you know, when you're when you're that much of an outsider, um, being watchful is is really a means to survive. You know, how can you survive? How can you get through every day except by um, kind of watching and trying to decode and translate what other kids are like, what quote unquote normal kids are like? You know, that was Mike's first experience in in some ways as an actor he had to learn to kind of create an outward self that would be 
palatable enough to the kids he encountered in the schoolyard every day to just get through a single day. Um, and, and watching how other people behaved, how they operated, how they signaled distress or pride or arrogance or anger or confusion um, w was really um, the way Mike taught himself how people operated. And, and you know, most kids pick that up just kind of naturally along the way, but, but Mike really had to make a study of it um, in, in order to survive. There were so many things in your book that surprised me about him, or maybe that I just took for granted. And one of those things I, I have to admit was the this idea of how he lost his hair. I always used to look at photos of him and think, "Man, that guy has great hair. <laughs> that guy has great brows and this great shock of blonde hair." So that was very surprising to me. And but also, this other idea about him that he was given to low moods. And he was very distracted, even as a as a much younger person. I I would just look at him, and I think I just took for granted that he was the life of the party, super popular, the funny guy. Um, but it was really interesting to me to see that at, at his heart, he he might have really been somebody. I wouldn't say he was an introvert, not by any stretch, but just somebody who. Um, maybe was intent on creating this outward persona. I, I don't, I don't want to psychoanalyze him, but it's just this idea that he was just, as you say, always an outsider. And that just comes through in very surprising ways in terms of his personality, even later on in his life as an adult. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I mean, I would not say that Mike was an introvert either. I think he really, he liked people. He thrived on people. But he was absolutely prone to depression. And uh, I think that that was a, a struggle for much of his life that, that, that he had to endure. And also, um, you know, it, it's the the uniqueness of his circumstance, which is that um, he he had to literally compose himself every day to to uh put on his hairpiece once he was allowed to have a hairpiece which he wasn't until he was a teenager he had to put on his eyebrows um that he had to use a really uh, kind of foul smelling chemical solution to remove them at the end of every day um you know his brother said to me that that it was really the defining uh feature of his childhood having to go through that and and I think in a way that is connected to what you're talking about, his 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 dark side, his depression, because among other things, he always said it's it's exhausting. It, it, it is incredibly depleting having to spend that much time, as he put it, being a person. Um, and, you know, how sad and how heartbreaking that that early on in his life, he didn't feel he was a person until he pulled himself together every day and did that. Mm, that is very sad. I was thinking about the ways that he could have just slipped into a kind of a of an anonymity. It would be so easy for a young person to do that. But he really reacted in the opposite way and was, you know, eventually was on the stage, was, you know, sort of um, in, put himself in positions where he, he people had to look at him. Um, and he didn't shy away from that. I, I, I found that very interesting um, about him. And and I found, too, it, it just seemed like this idea of the depression 
and you you talk about this too in in the book that he would just throw himself more deeply into the work it was like he he had these sort of ready ways of adapting uh and i'm sure they it, it was very difficult and very painful to do that i was thinking along the lines of how difficult it was for him even in college and uh, i found that story so interesting about how he chose his college can you talk can you talk about that <laughs> Well, well, it's it's really almost that the college chose him. You know, my you're you're right to say that it it would have it's it, there's a a world in which none of us ever would have heard of Mike Nichols. That was a very possible outcome for him. You know, there was nothing uh, about him that suggested future immense creative success. And and you know, although he was a very ambitious person, I don't think he was particularly ambitious about being famous. That was not. A goal. So it's it's really interesting to me that so much of his life is a kind of happy accident. He ends up at the University of Chicago around 1950, but at the very last minute, he um, he he was not intending to go there, and suddenly he got a late acceptance. I guess he came off a waiting list and and raced to Chicago and shows up the first day, and and yeah, then does this completely counterintuitive thing, which is that even as he starts enrolling for um, pre-med classes, because what he at first thinks he's going to be um, is a doctor, like his father and his grandfather were. Um, he does two things that are really surprising. One is he gets very interested in psychotherapy, um, in being a patient, in fact, um, you know, at a time when there was real stigma attached to that for, for a lot of people of, of his age, he took advantage of uh, a, a deal by which undergrads could get free psychotherapy from um, psychoanalytic trainees. Um, and he was very open about it. So th there's clearly already something, th there was something in Mike where he wanted to know himself better. And the other thing he does, as you say, is do the, the least expected possible thing, which is get interested in acting and put himself in a position where other people are going to have to look at him, which is really not his nature, but he does it anyway. That was so interesting, this idea about putting himself through that sort of therapy, because I think that was 1949. I mean, that was just, I would think, unheard of and at, at his age. And then he was very open and public about um, going through that um, therapy. And right around this time, we read in your book also about um, how terribly hungry and poor he was and he would wait and eat the scraps off his peers plates in the cafeteria after I mean very very sad uh details but then there's this humanities professor um that I have heard Mike Nichols talk about before in I think it was in the American Masters um program uh Professor Rosenheim was such a big influence on him this was a very perceptive professor he knew that Nichols was brilliant but he had no patience for someone who wasn't putting in the work and that's such a life lesson for Nichols I think that and, and he didn't finish college but it sure seems like he figured out Rosenheim's prescription I mean intentionally or not that you have to put in the work I just I found that um, anecdote about the professor so beautiful and so meaningful just this idea that this guy saw something in him and let him know that he was special um, I feel like that must have been just such a pivotal moment for him. I, I think it really was. And I think it was the combination of having someone 
you know, it's so important. Uh, you, you need someone at the right moment in your life to tell you that uh, you're special, but you also need someone at the right moment in your life to tell you that something is expected of you, that maximum effort is expected of you. And to have the same person uh, be the person who tells you those two things, it really had an impact on him. And, and yes, he didn't finish um, college, but, but I think uh, for the rest of his life, uh, Mike lived by the rule and, and asked um, the people who he collaborated with to live by the rule that if you're going to do something, you really have to do it and give your whole self to it. And that if they did that, if an actor or an actress did that for him, if a writer did that for him, uh, Mike would be an extraordinary ally. Um, but they had to do it. That was sort of the prerequisite. So speaking of like these chance meetings with people that end up being so important to his growth as a person, Elaine May, he meets her around this time too. Um, I never knew she was the mother of Jeannie Berlin from the Sheila Levine movie, uh, <laughs> which was a kind of a favorite of mine when I was much younger. Um, but the way they happened to meet, it just seemed like some kind of, gift from the universe for them both I mean it just seems so magical maybe not to Elaine May at the time <laughs> um, but it just seemed like wow were these two just destined to and her the, the details about her life were so interesting too to me I didn't know any of that about her um, but Mike Nichols had these kinds of relationships with with people um, I was trying to figure out what it is that they have in common. I mean, they're all sort of in the same little, you know, the Venn diagrams of, of Broadway and Hollywood. It's, it's a very diverse group. Right. So I was thinking about the way that um, Meryl Streep, for instance, was a kind of a, of a muse for him. But, and, and Elaine May, too, not to, not to jump away from uh, Elaine May, but there was just something about the way that he would gravitate to certain people, I guess, who were maybe like-minded, or they shared his vision, they shared his artistic vision. Um, yeah, I, I think it was, um, I think Mike was fine if they had their own artistic vision and was even energized by that. But but for, for, for you to become really close to Mike, no matter what phase of his life he was in, he had to believe that, and more than believe, he had to feel deeply that you and he spoke the same language. And and that was certainly true of Elaine May, who was someone he learned a great deal from uh, in their friendship and in their partnership. Um, but, but the way that partnership really starts when they're both still in their very early 20s is they start kind of he, he he goes up to her and starts doing a comedy bit. He's he pretends he's a secret agent. And she just she doesn't say, what are you doing? She doesn't pull back. She doesn't hesitate. She just jumps in and does it with him. Um, and, and it was, it was almost, I think his way of going up to someone and saying, are, are you friend or foe? I think, I think you might be friend. I think you might be someone uh, special to me, but, but here, I, this is how I'm going to test it. And, you know, if you pass that test, um, he was he was yours for life and and it didn't always start that way i mean i think 
the magic moment between him and Meryl Streep is uh, much later, obviously, on the set of Silkwood, when she suddenly emerges not only in costume for the first time, but in character. And he just sees in her someone who uh, holds herself to the highest possible standards of work and is going to hold him to those standards too. And it really, he, he said when, when he saw her ready to go, he almost had an anxiety attack because, because he realized that this was someone who was going to challenge him and elevate him. And he wasn't threatened by that. He wasn't defensive about it. He was just thrilled by it. I saw in an interview where he was moved to tears just to talk about her just to say her name, he became so emotional. Um, so I, I, I was just, I've been struck by that idea of um, his connection and his admiration for the, the actors that he worked with. It's, it's, it's really something uh, beautiful. And as I was reading your book, I've, I've gone back to watch um, Biloxi Blues and um, Heartburn. I pulled up Heartburn okay. on one of the streaming services last week. Um, I don't know if I'd realized how perfect uh, Meryl Streep is in both her joy and her misery in that movie. I, I, it's been many years uh, since, I, since I last saw that movie, but uh, wow, wow, Meryl Streep. <laughs> I was just like, yeah. wow, Meryl Streep is amazing. <laughs> I, I mean, one of the great joys of doing this book and finally having it out is getting to introduce or reintroduce people to heartburn which i really don't think is a movie that's appreciated enough i think i think of all the movies in in mike's body of work and he made some great ones and some good ones and some not good ones um heartburn is the one that that most got a raw deal when it was originally released it was it was dismissed by a lot of male critics and um seen as a kind of inconsequential women's movie and i think not only does it hold up beautifully uh, and is really funny and really touching, but is is full of just distinctively Mike Nichols touches all the way through. And it's it's been fun for me to uh, see people uh, give that movie a chance and, and uh, be so pleasantly surprised by it. I had occasion to watch Biloxi Blues, too. It's a movie that I've watched so many times uh, when it first came out. And I have to admit, I had this moment of that's Mike Nichols <laughs> when <laughs> when uh, when I was reading your book and uh, making my list of all these things I was going to rewatch and watching it again. Um, boy, does that one hold up too? It it really does. I mean, there's this just amazing ensemble cast and this great, um, you know, Neil Simon's story. It's just. Um, yeah, it's just such a great movie. The, the young Christopher Walken and Matthew Broderick, it's just such a beautiful movie. Right. It's such an interesting thing that Nichols did in that, which, you know, it had been a play on Broadway and and Mike was never interested in making a movie out of a play that he had directed, but he hadn't directed Biloxi Blues. Someone else had. So this was his first crack at the material. And, you know, in a, in a strange way, it's a beautiful example of how he could get maximum results from just one decision, which is he he replaced the drill sergeant, the actor who played the drill sergeant on stage, with Christopher Walken, um, who, as, as you know, gives a really distinctive, kind of surprisingly 
like very dangerous but also very low key performance um he's not yelling the whole time you you in fact never know when he's going to yell and the decision to freshen that part with a completely different creative take on it in turn affects all of the other performances uh in the movie because everybody else in the movie is somehow connected to the drill sergeant and and suddenly it's a new play it's a different dynamic in in almost every scene so uh that was i think mike at at his smartest and also at his most actor loving you know the 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 it's a very young cast and some some of the people in it were experienced like matthew broderick but many were not and one thing i heard about Balazzi blues over and over again was that mike was sort of a father slash troop leader for the entire cast but also really became a different director for every single actor based on what that actor needed oh wow i, I thought it was just must have been very effective because i just come away with um with this idea of all of those young actors just um, uh, blowing me away. I mean, it was just, it's just such a great film. And the thing about Christopher Walken, too, is what you said. This You don't know when he's going to yell, and that's the problem. <laughs> it's just like there's all this constant tension whenever he's in a scene because he's so quiet and uh, and he's just about to, you know, wield his power on these, on these young men. Uh, it's such a great movie. Yeah, lovely. Um, so I wanted to ask you about Mandy Patinkin. So I didn't know about all that controversy regarding his role in Heartburn. And I've heard other Hollywood stories about him that aren't, you know, they're not totally favorable. Um, it's interesting how today he's like this social media darling in these videos with his <laughs> wife. So I'm happy for, for them for that. Um, but I can imagine that this was probably something that would drive Mike Nichols to complete and utter despair to have to make such a, a a cast change like that, such a dramatic change. I mean, he had a history of replacing actors, even um, really great actors, if he didn't think they were right for the part. He did it to Gene Hackman on The Graduate. He did it to Robert De Niro on a movie that he never finished called uh, Bogart Slept Here. And he did it to Mandy Patinkin on Heartburn, replacing him with uh, Jack Nicholson. And it wasn't because uh, Patinkin was was misbehaving or anything like that. I mean, he was asking a lot of questions, but there are plenty of times in, in Mike's career when an actor asking a lot of questions uh, excited and invigorated him. The thing that um, Mike could not get over... Uh, whether he was directing on stage or on screen, was his own feeling that he had made a mistake. If he thought he had miscast you, if he thought you just weren't right for the part, it, it was almost paralyzing to him. He just would not be able to see his way out of it. And uh, I think that's what happened with Mandy Patinkin on Heartburn. Um, Elaine May, who was in some ways much tougher than Mike uh, about stuff like this, once said to him, if an actor isn't doing what uh, you want by the fifth day of rehearsal, fire him because they never get any better. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm not sure if Mike believed that or not, but, but it was, I think, the fifth day uh, that he was shooting heartburn that was Patinkin's final day. Wow. Well, you know, I've considered that 
Some people might read this book and realize that there was much more to Mike Nichols than they previously knew. I sort of started out saying that, started out our conversation saying that. And they might not appreciate every single thing that they learn about him. Uh, But I think that when we study the life of an artist, a, a creative, we have to know that this is not a guy who, you know, goes to bed and wakes up smiling you know, counts his money, thinks about his success, kisses his beautiful wife, and goes to the set where everybody loves him and everything's easy. Um, it's not what it's like. <laughs> so right. we learn a lot about the ways that Mike Nichols reacted, not just on the fifth day of rehearsal, right, but in certain very stressful situations. And they're not all positive. You know, they're not all super favorable. Um, sure. But what... What would you say? I read I read this line in your book about his saying something about Diane Sawyer. Sort of, he, he needed somebody to help him understand or see, you know, these moments where he wasn't on his best behavior. Um, so he was really very self aware about the the uh, his negative qualities. Um, he, he was, you know, Mike saw one of the jobs of his life as uh, working to overcome uh, his own bad behavior at the times that he behaved badly and and it was it was really important to him uh, that he recognize it in himself uh, and and he didn't mind it when other people recognized it in him and and that he try to grow out of it and, and move beyond it and to me that's an inspiring part of uh, his story that that he not only through a very very long career continued to work on himself as an artist but he continued to work on himself as a person i've read a lot of biographies and memoirs and autobiographies but what i appreciate about your book besides this like exhaustive research that you did this is a story it's a life, as the title says, but it's a story. And you have these two main parts that the book is divided into and these chapters with these great idiosyncratic titles. <laughs> and it very much offers us even a, like this narrative arc and some compelling characters. It is a story. And it's just, it's just very easy to fall into it in that way. You open it up, you read about the childhood, you underline every other <laughs> and highlight every uh, other thing. Um, it's really just an amazing story. I, I had so much fun just reading the index, uh, looking at just the <laughs> index. So uh, your research process must have been incredibly intense. Uh, it was. It was. I spent, you know, three and a half years researching it, part of the time, a lot of the time in the library and a lot of time reading and watching the movies, but also interviewing uh 250 people and it was all in the service of what you just said which is trying to make sure that it it is not just a chronological sequence of events but it is in fact a story and the only way that i knew i would be able to make it a story was if i understood really understood for myself 
why things happened in the order in which they happened, how one thing led to the next. And I, I thought if I can, if I can unlock that code, then I will be able to tell this as a story, not just as a list of credits or as a sequence of years. Mark Harris, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. Mark Harris is the author of the biography, Mike Nichols, A Life. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.